Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of NSPE Speaks, the only podcast produced especially for professional engineers by the National Society of Professional Engineers. I'm your host for this episode, Taylor Wanbaugh, staff writer, and I'm joined by the rest of our great podcasting team. Associate Editor Danielle Boykin. Senior Staff Writer and Content Editor Eva Kaplan-Leiserson. And Senior Manager of Public Relations and Outreach, Stacey Ober. After a busy holiday season, we're all looking forward to the new things that 2018 will bring. Not to mention trying our best to keep our New Year's resolutions. Yeah, that's true. All right, so everybody gets to talk about, did anybody make resolutions this year? I make more goals than resolutions. I know why uh, that, that terminology fits better. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm of the logic that if you don't make a resolution, you won't break it. There so you go. I just don't <laughs> really make them. Yeah, I have general ideas of what I want to do in the upcoming year, but I almost feel like making that sort of resolution is, like, everyone makes resolutions, and, like, how many people actually keep them? So I feel like it's better just to have, like, those goals and those mindsets throughout the year. And tempting fate to say, I will or I will (laughs) not. That's true. I like the goals. I will try to achieve. Yeah. Well, we know in 2018, PEs will continue to constantly work to improve the practice of engineering and promote the professional licensure. On this episode, we'll highlight some of the ways NSPE is fighting attacks on licensure, chat with this year's FAYA keynote speaker, Emily Blount, on PE licensure within the federal government, and list a wrap-up of some of the most important innovations of 2017. First up is Danielle, reporting on NSPE advocacy and outreach efforts. As many of our listeners know, uh, NSPE was founded on the importance of licensing to protect the public from unqualified practitioners. And the society sees a real threat against licensure. Over the last couple of years, there's been a growing movement by some governors and legislators to target the regulation of occupations and professions under the guise of sort of cutting government interference and hopefully boosting their state economies. NSPE, in partnership with the state societies, is actively monitoring and responding to those threats whenever and wherever they arise. And we've been doing a good job of uh, keeping everyone on track with those in our publications. Um, Our government relations team is really good about that. In January, February, that issue of PE Magazine, the cover feature is called Rising Threat Level, which kind of gives you a summary of some of the things that have been going on for the past few years and just, just give you a take on how like I said, again, our state societies and some of our licensing board executive directors and members are working to sort of push back against these threats to licensure. Usually with a lot of these bills that come up, they're not targeting PEs, but, you know, they may want to help people who are cosmetologists, barbers, even florists <laughs> and other professions sort of get, get some leeway with them. But, you know, as any legislation happens you you make it broad you end up catching a lot more people in that net yeah yeah so that's one of the concerns in the feature article i talked to people in nevada arizona ohio and pennsylvania just about their personal experiences so if you read the feature you'll get a take on some of the things that uh, just a snippet of what's happened just because there are at least 26 states that have been affected by some form of legislation since we've been tracking it The first serious warning sign appeared in Indiana in 2015 with the creation of the Indiana Job Creation Commission. The commission was derived from model legislation, which was pushed by a group called the American Legislative Exchange Council, 
which is an association of state lawmakers that supports private sector interests. This led to a recommendation that would have eliminated, eliminated the PE license in Indiana. So on August 20, uh, 2015, as the result of opposition from the Indiana Society of Professional Engineers and NSPE, the commission rescinded the recommendation to eliminate the PE license in that state. And so as, as, as I mentioned, again, NSP has mapped out 26 states where similar legislation, regulations, or executive orders have been introduced, signed, and or passed. And again, although the legislation and executive orders may not specifically target professional engineers, by opposing occupational licensure in general, these broad attacks can sow confusion about the importance of engineering licensure and its role in protecting the public. And I I mentioned Indiana was sort of the start of that. For example, I mentioned Nevada. They experienced what it was like to sort of face down an attempt to deregulate the engineering license as well. Assembly members introduced a bill last year that would loosen regulations and promote competition for occupations, again, such like barbers and cosmetologists. The state society got together and worked and mobilized and in a short period of time were able to get the engineers dropped from that bill. So again, it's about the societies and and national working together. If I remember correctly, the Nevada one especially was like really quick. Yeah, because the and, happened. Yeah, because legislation was introduced in March, and then April you had a, a notice about the bill making. Uh, there was a hearing, and and so like so they, I think three hours. I think it kinda, was. <laughs> yeah, I mean it was really quick turnaround. Yeah, so you kind of have to be prepared, and, and and I think a lot of the other states are seeing what's going on, and and there's some more and more improved uh, mobilization. Uh, because, like I said, it's 26 states, and that's nearly half of, of the country. Right. And by NSPE sharing information about what other states are experiencing and the lessons learned, then states that are new to this uh, can learn from that and learn from other, other states as well. And we just had a really great example of that in our recent webinar, right? Yes. There was a licensure under attack webinar on January 10th, really well-received, mm-hmm. uh, 700 registrants. And this particular webinar featured NSPE Executive Director Mark Golden, NCWS CEO Jerry Carter, and Arizona State Licensing Board Alyssa Cornelius. And through that webinar, people were able to learn more about the proposed threats that have been occurring across the states. And they were also kind of get, you know, help them understand how these proposed threats affect the PE. And, and, and they gave you some tidbits on how to identify the threat the threats that have grown in 2016 and 2017, and to sort of look, you know, kind of look ahead and see what's going to go on in 2018 as well. It was an hour long, really informative, and some of the highlights from that webinar, uh, one of the things that um, Mark mentioned that a lot of these orders are broad in their approach, but you have to kind of work to ensure that you, as he said, you don't sort of throw the baby out <laughs> with the bathwater. <laughs> right. Uh, so that that's always a possibility. And one of the other challenges that Mark mentioned was that often with the, this legislation is that you have the public's understanding of engineering. Mm-hmm. You know, when it comes to licensure, they understand the legal and the medical professions, clearly. But they don't, there aren't, I guess he said, individual consumers of engineering services. So right. they don't think about the, the license. Uh, and, of course, members of the public, they become legislators, the decision makers, 
and you know, and then they, you know, want to do away with these regulations without understanding the key role of the engineer. And so that makes, you know, your jobs a lot harder when, when this issue comes out. But one of the highlights of the webinar was definitely Melissa Cornelius, who is the state exec of Arizona's licensing board. And they had a real, real challenging issue because their governor um, issued an executive order uh, where he you know, wanted to review the state licensing boards and just sort of see if they were effective and if they were regulating professions that shouldn't be regulated. And her board actually regulates, you know, licensed landscape architects, geologists, engineers, architects. And they were essentially trying to get rid of the architects and geologists uh, simply because some of the legislators think that architect, landscape architects just mow lawns and geologists just collect rocks. And so their understanding uh. level of what they do is very low. And so Melissa and other, you know, actually the NPEs and the architects kind of rallied to the cause because they understand how these professions, they're learned professions, and if they get hurt, <laughs> everyone else might get hurt eventually. The public suffers. Yeah, and, yeah. and so one of the things that she... Uh, said that the powers that be do not understand the difference between licensure and regulations, and no matter how well-educated professional may be, there's a chance that the public can be harmed. So mm-hmm. uh, licensure is important, and so it's good to hear from her and her experience, and, and hopefully um, there'll be some great takeaways from that webinar. So. Yeah, and I think um, the webinar is now available on the website um, for anyone who missed it to kind of listen in and um, and get hear that information for yourself, and we'll put that link in the show notes. It's part of the 15 free, which we'll talk about. Yes, that's coming up later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, yeah, like I said, this is going to be an ongoing issue, and so we'll, like I said, definitely update people on, on like I said, the, the feature actually captures other states that have dealt with the issue, so definitely read the feature and check out the webinar. Speaking of licensure and and the importance of licensure, one area that NSPE has been a strong advocate for is the licensure of federal engineers. Licensure being done through the states, federal employees are often not required to get licensed, but it's an area that NSPE uh, thinks is is quite important, and we have a position statement 1767 on that and have talked about that. Information is available on our Action on Issues page, and we will link to that. But I spoke with our FAYA keynote speaker, Emily Blount, who is going to be speaking at the ceremony coming up for the Federal Engineer of the Year Award that NSPE offers every year. And I discussed with her the importance of federal licensure. I talked with her about her background. She's the Director of Engineering, Technology, and Geospatial Services for the U.S. Forest Service here in Washington, D.C. She's responsible for infrastructure that includes over 300,000 miles of roads, 6,000 bridges, 16,500 administrative and research facilities, 500 dams, etc., and 193 million acres of forest and grasslands this infrastructure is supporting. She is a licensed general contractor. She's a PE. And uh, we also talked about a very important project that she worked on when she was at the Washington Headquarters Services she was overseeing the construction of the Pentagon Memorial, something that uh, was very meaningful to her. Take a listen. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about FAIA and the role of the professional engineer in the federal government. 
Um, and I know that you are going to be the keynote speaker at the fea ceremony, which is coming up. Thanks for uh, taking the time today. I appreciate it. Well, I'm very excited to be uh, with you today and as well as being the speaker. It's quite an honor. Wonderful. And to start out, can you just elaborate a little bit about your role at the U.S. Forest Service and what it involves and what you do there? So my actual title is I'm the Director of Engineering, Technology, and Geospatial Services. And so the portfolio that I manage for the U.S. Forest Service is, is quite broad and includes some areas that aren't necessarily within the engineering sphere, but but clearly have a, an element of support for our overall agency success. And so uh, the traditional engineering disciplines, all of the work that we do with our facilities, with our bridges, with our dams, with our road structure, our transportation structure, we have some complex facilities such as aircraft hangars. Uh, we've got research and development facilities, drinking wastewater systems, of course, but my portfolio also includes things uh, like all of our fleet. So we have uh, over 30,000 types of fleet, uh, everything, again, from law enforcement to fire and aviation to our uh, six-pack trucks that we need to get across the lands. I also oversee the technology and development centers. The Forest Service uh, has a, a strong need and expertise in transferring technology across our agency. And so we look at those things in the field that uh, our field folks are struggling with and, and how can we roll those up and, and find some tech tips or guides that we can use and disperse across the agency to make, uh, make their work easier and more consistent and transparent. We also have uh, the sustainable operations side, which looks at how we operate as an agency and try to reduce our footprint and lighten, lighten our the need for disturbance of the national forest and grasslands to the extent we can and still get our mission done. Excellent. Oh, thank you. And as a professional engineer, what do you find most fulfilling and rewarding ab about the work that you're doing? You know, I, I think about the work that we're doing and the fact that uh, what we do is on is utilized by the public or on our landscapes for, you know, on average 50 years and in some cases much longer. And so the need to ensure the, the reliability of it, the sustainability of it, the safety, uh, the access, the needs the public have, has as well as our own agency needs, uh, they're here for a very long time. And being a professional engineer and knowing that the, the decisions that I make and the designs and the planning and the programming that I do, you know, they, they touch the public and, and, and others for a very long time. And, that's kind of the lens that I look at when I look at the work that we do across our landscapes. Great. And I know that in a previous role um, for the Department of Defense's Washington Headquarters Services, you oversaw the construction of the Pentagon Memorial. Can you talk about that and what that meant to you? You know, it still gives me goosebumps to be a part of that project. Mm -hmm. I mean, what an honor. And just to be part of the lives of the families that were, uh, that had an, uh, a member lost, member of their family lost. And so, it was. It was quite an honor and, and, and significantly humbling to be able to work with those families, to work with the architect who was selected from a pool of, of many, and to be able to help blend that into the landscape of the Pentagon, uh, knowing, again, all of the vulnerabilities that the Pentagon has, the threat, the, the high level of, of sensitivity and security around that, but also knowing that we wanted to have this as a place that that the public at large could come and the family members could come and have a sense of, of, of peace and a, a sense of place and kind of that point in time where these, these events of 9-11 occurred 
so yes, it, it was quite humbling and, and, and an experience that uh, I will remember for, for a long time. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. And what drew you to the federal government specifically? Well, I had uh, my, my son was born, and I was working probably 12 and 15 hour days at the time in the private sector, and, and I wanted to uh, have a more stable work environment where I was not traveling quite as bit and working quite those hours. So honestly, mm-hmm. it was the security and the stability of federal government um, that drew it, um, drew me to that. My my father was career military active duty, and then after he retired, he went to the federal sector, and he kept telling me, you know, you've got to, you've got to check this out. And, and at the time, it's like, you know, no, Dad, I, I, I don't want to go to the, the federal side. I'm really enjoying the, the private sector. But at the time my son was born and when he was about two or three, I said, you know what, I think I would like to look into this. been with the federal government ever since, and I just can't speak highly enough about the opportunities and the ability to take on challenging work, working abroad. I had the opportunity to, to work in Germany for over six months. And just, it is it's phenomenal the level of training and the value that is placed on training and uh, furthering your education. I was able to go and get my master's degree as well. And things that aren't, they're, they're valued in the, in the um, public sector, in the, uh, but probably are in the private sector, but probably not not the same level as cost, quality, and schedule. Those are the three things I looked at more when I worked uh, in the outside realm. Great. And um, federal uh, licensure is licensure of, of engineers in the federal government is something that NSPE has advocated for over the years. Can you discuss in your mind what the importance of, of having licensed PEs is in the federal government? It's, it's interesting. My entire career was with the Department of Defense until this most recent job. So my, my mindset around that has changed somewhat. Um, when I worked for the Department of Defense, you know, we're on an installation with a fence, with a guard, and to, to come onto that installation you know, requires a purpose and a pass and an escort and things of that, that nature. And so the work that I was doing within DOD was very insular to just the audience, if you will, just the people who uh, were working there on that footprint. But as I've grown to realize with my role now um, across 193 million acres of forest and grasslands that are open, they're, they're yours, they're your forest and grasslands, they, they belong to you and the public and, and everyone. And um, the, the idea of my role and my level of responsibility, I feel is much greater. And so the, the, the safety, the access, the needs to ensure the integrity of, of what we do as an agency the level of not just compliance, but the level of oversight and ensuring that what we are doing on those 193 million acres is consistent with what the states are doing and, and all of the private sector. Okay, great. And talk a little bit about the, the Federal Engineer of the Year Award and the ceremony. What are your thoughts on, on the importance of, of that recognition? Well, I can remember my first job as a federal engineer. Uh, I found out that my supervisor had been selected for the Air Force and had gone up for this award. Just to see him and to talk with him about what that meant to him personally and to think about it across all of the Air Force at the time, to think that he was selected to represent the Air Force was was quite humbling uh, for him and, and clearly for the rest of us that worked for him. And 
And as I've moved throughout my career, being able to pause and recognize federal engineers at that level, I think is so important. I don't think we do enough of that within the various agencies. Uh, we're very mindful of, of the cost and the time and, and that we are public servants, and, and that is forefront in my mind, and it always is. But we need to take the time to recognize our employees, and absolutely what federal engineers bring to, to the public at large and the role that they play. And so, I, again, I'm just very honored to be the, the guest speaker this year um, and, and very honored to be able to listen to the stories of the engineers that are going to be there and representing their various agencies. Well, we're very glad to have you, and thank you very much. Anything else you want to add or anything you'd like our, our listeners to, to know? Well, there are so many career paths within federal government, and I know coming out of college, federal government was one of the last things that I thought of, and, and I don't know why that was, because my father, as I said, was a federal employee, as an engineer, of all things. Um, but I can tell you the, the level of expertise, the challenges that engineers in federal government are, are faced with, not just budget constraints and time constraints, but really cool projects, really substantial projects that touch so many people across not just the U.S., but but across um, the, the world as a whole. We have locations all around the world. So if I could just say one thing, I would say reach out and, and find a mentor within federal government, within engineering and federal government, and, and I would welcome that from any of you. Um, I enjoy that. I enjoy being a mentor to others and have, helping crack the code of getting into federal government. Uh, we've got significant numbers of retirees taking place right now. And we, we truly need the skill sets uh, of young engineers, uh, all engineers, and it's, a, it's an amazing place to work. And I would welcome uh, mentoring you and helping with you, and I, I know my counterparts would as well. That's a very generous offer. Thank you. Um, is there a particular way that folks should get in touch with you to, if they want to learn more about available opportunities? Yeah, they're, they're welcome. My email, my um eblount at fs.fed.us is my email address. And we have a substantial number of engineers and engineering technicians across the full service, and many of which we, we really encourage professional engineers. Uh, I know there are a lot of mentors within uh, our agency, and there are, I'm certain there are in others that would love to talk with you. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. And thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I'm looking forward to the uh, ceremony next month. The Federal Engineer of the Year Award Ceremony will be on February 23rd from 1 to 3 p.m. at the National Press Club. Uh, you can buy tickets online on NSPE's website if you're local or you want to travel. Uh, we will put a link uh, to that in the show notes. And we hope that you all can join us. It's a, it's a great event. I've gone in the past. Uh, people bring their families. Uh, they're very proud to be uh, nominated. And, of course, the honor of uh, winning the Federal Engineer of the Year Award is a great one, and we feature them um, in our publications, on our website. We do a interview uh, with them, and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big deal. So we're looking forward to that. Um, Stacy, what else is going on? Well, we have a lot going on, actually. Just a reminder to everyone that the 2018 menu of your 15 free PDHs are now available on online. These have been published to the website. They're available for free to you NSPE members uh, to conveniently view from the comfort of your home or your office. 
Um, and you can earn credits, PDHs, by viewing the webinars and passing the quiz. Like I said, there's 15, and they range in topic from ethics to uh, some more technical things, as well as the licensure under attack webinar that Danielle discussed earlier. Uh, we've also put together a short video uh, that will show you how to access those 15 free, and we will include a link to that in our show notes. Also coming up um, in March, we are doing a virtual career fair. It's going to be called the Engineering and Science Career Network Career Fair, and it's hosted in part by NSPE, along with some of our other engineering association partners. And it's going to have numerous benefits. Um, it's improved efficiency in online recruiting and in-depth chats, so it's great for job seekers, as well as um, if you or your firm are, are looking to hire, um, you know, consider taking part in that. We'll include some information on that as well. And then next month, February, um, is National Engineers Week, and it's just around the corner. So this year's theme is Engineers Inspiring Wonder. As you may all know, NSPE founded E-Week back in 1951. We can take credit for that. Yes, of course we're going to. And it's sort of expanded to include um, not just National Engineers Week, but some other events um, like Introduce a Girl to Engineering Day, Global Day, um, as well as the Engineering Family Day at the National Building Museum that NSPE will again be taking part in. Um, if you happen to live in the local area and are listening to this, you can expect to get an email from me shortly um, <laughs> requesting some volunteers for that activity. It's a hands-on activity we do with, I think it's about five or 6,000 people that come through the museum each year. Um, it's huge, awesome, it's great event. It's fun, yeah. Yep. Had to bring the kids. Go through lots of tape. <laughs> yes, and ping pong balls right. are everywhere. As Eva mentioned, uh, FAYA is also coming up. That will actually be the week following Family Day at the Building Museum, so NSPE will be out and about in downtown D.C. this year. And the last thing I want to bring up is NSPE just posted on the website uh, the year in review for 2017, and it's kind of a big picture of the ongoing narrative, occurrences, and successes that NSPE and its state partners achieved the past year. So we put together a website uh, where we break everything up by our branding messages, champion, guide, advance, and unite. And then there's also an awesome little three-minute Powtoon video that kind of goes through the highlights of the year in case you don't want to read through everything. So speaking on terms of a general wrap-up of 2017, for our interesting innovation section of this podcast, I actually pulled an article from Popular Science Magazine. They do a section every year called like 2017 Best of What's New list. So it's different every year and they have specific sub-lists within that larger list. And so this year they did one, 2017's 11 Most Important Innovations in Engineering. There's a whole long list of things and it's really interesting and I definitely will go ahead and put the link in our show notes so you can check out the article. There are a couple things that stood out to me as being something that's really cool and just how engineers are advancing science so far. So one of the things that I saw was the digital to biological converter, which sounds like a science, doesn't that sound yeah, like a science yeah. fiction thing like you would see on Star Trek or something? But basically, it's a printer that can print genetic code based on digital instructions sent from anywhere. So it's still a prototype, still working on it, finishing the final touches. But basically, what they're hoping is that they'll be able to print off personalized medical treatments for patients or mass-produce vaccines to combat disease outbreaks. Wow. So they're kind of taking an abstract subject and converting it to a physical. That's really cool. Yeah, no, I, cool. Thought it, I thought that was so cool. 
Um, so I'll be interested to see when it is developed and is actually yeah. like a working model. Another thing that's new this year, I don't know if a, a lot of people have seen, uh, Danielle and I were actually talking about this earlier, the Falcon Stadium. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> one of my favorite teams, yes. but, you know, go Saints. <laughs> um, so this year they actually built a whole, well, in 2017 they built a whole new stadium. Um, and one of the big features of the new stadium was the roof. It's eight 500-ton steel bone pedals above the main seating bowl. So it's this translucent fabric that unfurls 200 feet above the field, kind of like a camera aperture. So it can unfurl in as quickly as nine minutes. And then basically it will shield players and fans from inclement weather. So Nine minutes is pretty quick if you yeah. think about the size of a stadium too. Wow. And I know I've seen, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if snow as much happens in Atlanta, but I remember watching a Seattle Seahawks game where the snow is just oh. pouring down or rain's pouring down. The players can barely see. So it's just like a really interesting, like who engineered that? That is just such a interesting and innovative way to solve that problem. Yeah, I wonder if Green Bay is going to get I was thinking Green Bay as soon as you you see the the people in the stands snow covered and I'm like, you think that if you're in a cold weather state that you would uh, build a dome. I think it's a badge of honor though to be out there in the snow. Yeah, I wonder if other teams will go ahead and like follow this initiative and building new stadiums. Um, And I wonder if it could be used for other things too, like concert venues and just because, I mean, there's so many different things that this could be used for. And yeah. It's just really cool that it's retractable, too. So you still are getting that outdoor experience. But then, like, if bad weather strikes, it doesn't mean everyone's got to go home. Sure. And another thing that I pers- – I'm personally a big roller coaster fan. So this uh, really stood out to me. Uh, so Rocky Mountain Construction's doing this new thing called the Rapster Track Coasters. So imagine being mounted on a 15-inch wide steel rail. That's awesome. Yeah, it's crazy. (laughs) Like, that is so small. Um, Yeah. And they're going to have single-seat chairs with open air on either side, so it will be like a kind of a line of people on these coasters. And these coasters are going to go up to 50 miles an hour. But basically, they've been engineered to use less steel, which means it's less expensive to build and needs less support. So people will have like a fun experience riding these coasters and almost get that experience of flying through the air which could be terrifying i'm Uh, not sure which it's it's definitely a toss-up on that one but yeah i think that will be really cool to see i know that they're going to do like a wonder woman themed um, track and different things like that so it'll be interesting to see like what other types of inventions will come out as far as theme parks and amusement parks go but we've got the list in front of us right now does anyone like is there anything that really stands out to anyone else i think that sea dwelling snake bot it sort of mentions um on this list that it could help repair underwater infrastructure which mm-hmm. is kind of key for our members i know that a lot yeah. of departments of transportations have been using innovative robots and, and sensors and things to kind of, you know, because if it's cold and you got to go underwater, right. areas you can't see, that seems like that's something that's neat, but also uh, practical. Yeah, it's like a safety thing, too. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Definitely anything where you can prevent people from, like, getting hurt or having to go in and do something like that is pretty incredible to have a machine replace people in doing that. Yeah, I don't know about the snake aspect. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how it will look. Yeah, um, yeah. But, yeah, it would be interesting to see what that's going to physically look like. There was actually something I saw on Jimmy Fallon the other night. I don't, I don't know when the show actually aired, but um, he had some people on there with, like, robots and mm-hmm. robotic devices, and there was one that was, like, a snake. And it was basically, um, instead of water, it was used for, like, search and rescue. Oh, good. Um, so, like, earthquakes and mm-hmm. stuff like that because and it had a camera mounted on the end. Uh-huh. 
and um, because that could get into the crevices and the cracks that people can't. Yeah. And that was pretty cool. They had to actually climb up Jimmy's leg, which was <laughs> funny. But um, so, yeah, so I think a lot of these I've noticed, you know, like the snake, and then there's a couple on here about the um, synthetic spider silk and um, mosquitoes. I think it's interesting to see how they're, I think, the, like the biomimicry kind of thing mm-hmm. where they're taking what's happening in nature and either improving on it or transitioning it to somehow use the spider silk one was cool for me because I was like this is awesome where it's it's a limited edition they're doing a run of ties it's like they're making this thread out of synthetic spider silk and apparently it's protein-based fibers and they could be a renewable alternative to the petroleum derived fabrics that dominate more than 65 percent of the world's textile market Mm. So, I mean, that's pretty pretty substantial, you know. You make a good point about the biovimicry. I actually wrote a feature article about that for PE Magazine a number of years back. I'll uh, dig that up and put a link in the show notes about ways that uh, engineers and scientists were learning from nature and uh, taking um, inspiration from nature to, uh, to make some really cool stuff. I like that. Yeah, and I know that um, one of the big things that we've been writing about is, like, the global issues for engineers – Um, and what those have been identified as. And I think a lot of the things on this list deal with natural resources and Mm -hmm. preservation of natural resources and coming up with new innovations um, for that sort of thing. And there's also, you know, the health issue. Health and human safety is also a big issue that's covered in a lot of these. But, yeah, I would definitely recommend that you take a look at this list. Um, There's a lot of really interesting stuff on there. Some of it's kind of funny to think about. Some of it's really cool that... Um, And I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thanks to all for joining us for this episode of NSPE Speaks. We'd love to hear what you think of our podcast. So please go on wherever you listen and subscribe to NSPE Speaks. Rate us, review us, (laughs) subscribe to us. Email us. Email us. We would love to hear from you what you think of the podcast and if you have ideas for upcoming podcasts. Our email address is podcasts. P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at nspe.org.